our scripture today from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. This is the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was, also, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. Thank you, Elias. So thankful for you, brother. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. Um, we thank you, Lord, uh, that you, we are justified in Christ by his free grace. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds, Lord, and our understanding as we seek, O oh Lord, to hear your word. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would be present, O oh Lord, and be glorified. Uh, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Joe Bynum. I'm one of the pastors here at CCC. And um, we're in the book of James. We're in James chapter 2 uh, this morning. And James begins chapter 2 by asking the question, as we saw, of whether a person's faith alone, by itself, apart from works, can save him. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And this is a question that all of us have asked ourselves at one time or another. Is faith alone all that is necessary for salvation? It's especially a question that uh, new Christians often struggle with after they've embraced the gospel message. They often ask themselves, what role do my good works play in salvation? But what makes this question even more important is the fact that it clarifies for us. It makes clear the role of works in salvation and the difference between faith and works in salvation. You see, when we hear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, our natural response is, you mean I don't have to do anything at all to be saved? Nothing at all? Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I'm free to do whatever I want to do? 
free to live how I want to live. Perhaps you know someone who says that they're a Christian and they admit that they're sinners and they even confess that they believe the gospel message of salvation in Jesus. They go to church on Sundays and they're familiar with the teachings of the Bible and even love to talk about spiritual things. So at first glance, they look and sound just like genuine believers. But upon closer inspection, you notice that that person's life throughout the week is not consistent with what they claim to believe about the Bible, what they claim to believe about Jesus. See, they regularly engage in works that the Bible condemns. They have a habit of getting drunk, of swearing, of being sexually immoral. And more than anything, there seems to be no real repentance over their sin, no desire for self-sacrifice or desires to sacrifice their own desires for Christ. No willingness to be obedient for Christ, especially when it costs them something. You see, the message for us from James this morning is not to be deceived about the role of faith and works in salvation. Because to be deceived about the role of faith and works in salvation is to be deceived about our very own salvation itself. And so James cautions us in chapter 1 to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Because true faith shows itself in action, right? It shows itself in what we do. True faith shows itself both in how we act and what we do. Now with that in mind, we'll examine our passage today under three headings, three headings. The first, false faith demonstrated, verses 14 through 19, false faith demonstrated. The second, true faith validated, verses 20 through 26, true faith validated. And the third and final point, the price of faith illustrated. The price of faith illustrated, verses 21 and 25. But first, false faith demonstrated by James in verse 14. Now, in order to distinguish true faith from false faith, the kind of faith that saves from the kind of faith that does not, James presents us, you'll notice, with two separate examples of a faith that does not work in verses 15 through 19. The first example for us today is an ethical example, right? And the other is a theological example. In verse 15 through 17, we have the ethical example. The ethical example of a false faith. And in verses 18 and 19, we see the theological example that James gives us of a false faith. But first, the ethical example. The ethical example. Verse 15. If a brother is or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now here you'll notice that James paints a picture of a brother or a sister who is extremely poor. 
and according to the Greek, is literally without clothes, naked, or so. He's almost, he's like, he's poorly dressed at best and unable to keep warm, to take care of himself. And notice how the person, the brother or sister, responds to them in verse 16. He says to the poor person, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. Now, I don't think that James' purpose in this story was to provide us with the details of an actual event that took place in reality, right? But I do believe that James is using an ethical example from everyday life to show us the futility or uselessness of a person's faith apart from his works, apart from what he does, of saying one thing and doing another, of acting in a way that is contrary or not consistent with what he or she claims to believe. And notice that the person who claims to have faith in this story is characterized by James morally as a person who is a very selfish person, right? We know that because in verse 16, he's described as a person who does not give or is not giving. A person who lacks true love and generosity for his neighbor. And this kind of behavior is not only inconsistent with genuine faith, but also a violation, indirect violation to God's second commandment, the greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbor as Christians as we love ourselves. And so the person in this story who claims to have faith, who claims to be a Christian, is therefore living in direct opposition to God's law through his or her actions And actually, what they're doing is showing contempt for God's law, right? By not loving their neighbor. That holy law, the law of love. And look at verse 16 with me. And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Without giving, notice, them the things they need for the body. What good is that, James is asking? You see, here the person is described as literally doing nothing to help ease their neighbor's situation, though they wish him well with their words. And so this is the kind of faith, a faith that is without works, a faith that does not express itself in our outward actions of love and concern for others that James is condemning. It's an inactive faith, a dead faith, a faith that is non-existent. And so we have here an ethical example of dead faith. A faith that does not work. But now we'll turn to the theological example of dead faith that James gives us in verse 18. The theological example of dead faith. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, right? And I have works. Show me your faith, James says, apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works, by what I do. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here James is responding to the objection uh, of a person who sees faith as something like our spiritual gifts, right? Uh, You know, the person says, uh, okay, James, well, your spiritual gift might be faith, but my spiritual gift is works. You see, the person is continuing to insist on making a distinction between faith and works, as if you can have one without the other. 
As if they're two different and separate realities. But James, James will have no part of this line of reasoning, right? So he responds in verse 19 to this person, uh, and, he sa- and he says to them, Okay, I've showed you already the unity of faith and works in the ethical realm, right? I've, I've described to you that, how what a person believes is demonstrated ethically by what he does. But now I'm going to show to you the unity of faith and works uh, with an illustration from the theological realm. How that even if a person has correct theology and sound Bible knowledge, like I myself like to believe about myself, it's useless if it's not accompanied by acts of obedience. That person's faith, my faith, is also useless. And in verse 19, James does exactly that. He paints a picture of a person who not only believes in God, but also has correct theology about God, about his very nature. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. You see, James commends him. He commends this person's monotheism, which it was a very important element of Jewish religion and Jewish faith that separated them, as a matter of fact, from other nations. Their confession called the Shema, which they recite even to this very day, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So the person that James describes definitely, most definitely has a correct theology, at least concerning the oneness, the very nature of the true, one true God. And yet, even that correct theology, James says, if it is not accompanied by acts of obedience, proves absolutely nothing. And James says this because even the demons believe and shudder, he says. You see, The demons believe all these things about God. Spiritually, they know who he is. We've seen that in the New Testament when Jesus Jesus is confronted with demons and when he confronts them, they shudder and they fear because they realize who he is. And yet, they do not obey. They persist in their disobedience. So they have a proper theological knowledge of God. And yet they do not obey. And James is comparing these persons to demons. You see, James uses the faith of demons to prove that although good theology is very important, it is not enough by itself to save a person apart from works of obedience. You see, true saving faith is more than just passively assenting to correct theology, to correct Bible knowledge about God. No, True faith is the active engagement, right, of both the heart and the mind in the things of God. And it's demonstrated by what a person does, by the way that he or by the way that she lives out her lives. Do you see how James is appealing to both the ethical and the theological realms in verse 17 and 20 in order to prove That faith without works is useless. To both the head and to the heart. In order to show the reality of true faith. Genuine faith. And I believe that the reason that James gives us both an ethical and a theological example of a faith that does not work. Is in order to prove that true faith transforms a person from both within and without. In both the ethical and the theological, in both the intellect and the heart, in the soul 
as well as in the body. What do I mean by that? That true faith touches a person at the very essence of their being, both their heads and their hearts. And the results are that their actions, their works, the things that they do reflect what they truly believe on the inside. So that their practice will generally, although not perfectly, right, be governed by their faith, by what they believe. So that both faith and works work together in union. You know, there's a story about an old boatman who painted the word faith on one of the oars of his boat, right? And and he painted the word works on the other oar of his boat. And when someone asked him why he did this, he responded by slipping the oar with the word faith on it into the water on one side by itself. And as he rowed the boat, of course that boat made a very tight circle. Then he took the other oar, marked works, and he put that oar in the water. And he began to row in the opposite direction. And as he began rowing with that oar, the boat made another tight circle. And then someone, and then the boatman said this, he said this, you see, to make a passage across the lake, you need both oars working together in order to keep the boat on the straight and narrow path. If you do not have the use of both oars, you make no progress either across the lake nor as a Christian. False faith demonstrated. False faith demonstrated. And that brings us to our second point, which is true faith validated. True faith validated. Verses 20 through 26. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was therefore called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now, in our second point, you'll notice that James seeks to grab our attention by both his choice of people and his choice of words. He seeks to grab our attention to this story about the choice of people that he uses and his choice of words. But first, James's choice of people. Now you'll notice that as James continues his argument, right, for the reality of faith and the uselessness of faith apart from works, he turns his attention to two significant figures in redemptive history, right? Both to Abraham and to Rahab to prove his point. You might be wondering why James specifically chose to use examples of two individuals who could not be more different from one another. They're like the polar opposites, right? Abraham and Rahab in the Bible. We can understand his choice of Abraham since he was the father of the Jewish nation. 
But why Rahab, right? Why Rahab? Wasn't she a Gentile and even a prostitute? What's James' reasoning behind this? Why is he using Rahab in particular? Well, I think one of the reasons that he does this is to show that justification by works is not a new idea. It's not a novel idea. Something that James himself just invented. But it has always been a doctrine that has been a part of the sacred scriptures. These are both two Old Testament figures. But I believe that there's also a broader reason why James uses the examples of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and Rahab, a non-Jewish convert who was also a prostitute, in particular in order to prove his point. And this has a lot to do with the consistency, right, of the way of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles alike. You see, the example of faith and works working together in the lives of two people from two very different cultural and ethnic heritage make James's argument for the reality of faith and works even more credible, even more believable, right? Because faith and works work together consistency in the lives of all people alike, Abraham, Rahab, everybody, without regard to a person's race, ethnicity, or lifestyle. And it's always been taught that way in the scriptures. You see, even though James's audience was largely Jewish, the way of salvation, the way that people were saved in the Bible has always been the same for Jews and Gentiles in both Testaments alike. And that way of salvation was by faith alone, not by a faith that was not alone, that by faith that was alone, but by a faith that worked, a faith that worked itself out in what people did, not just by a profession, a faith that was demonstrated by the way people lived their lives. And both Abraham and Rahab, though very different, were the same in their faith. And they shared the same faith, and they were saved by that faith, a faith that worked. A faith that was demonstrated by their actions, by what they did. So sinners, no matter who they were, or what they did, or what their background, have always been saved by a living and vital faith, a true faith. A faith that has always transcended both racial and ethnic boundaries. And that claim from James would have absolutely shocked his largely Jewish audience that a Gentile prostitute was saved in the same way as Father Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish race. James's choice of people, his choice of people, Notice, second, James's choice of words. James's choice of words. Now, you'll notice in verse 21 that James says something that might seem a bit controversial at first glance, right? He says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, that sounds controversial, right? Because as Christians, we've always heard that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. James says something just the contrary here. 
that we're justified by works. It says, was not our father Abraham justified by works? And that's the reason that this sounds a bit controversial because there's so many other passages of Scripture that specifically state that we're justified by faith and faith alone. You might know some of them. Uh, Romans 4. We are justified by faith alone and not by our works. Or you might be familiar with Romans chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain, says the Apostle Paul, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what are, what are we to make of this apparent contradiction in the Bible? Is James teaching that there's another way of salvation in opposition to the Apostle Paul? Is Paul teaching that there's another way of salvation in opposition to James? Well, again, at first glance, it seems like James is contradicting the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans. That's not what he's, what he's, what he's doing. Are we justified by our works? Are we justified by our faith? Which one is it? Well, I think the key to answering this question lies in the very context of both the arguments of Paul and James. You see, at that particular time, both Paul and James were addressing two very fundamentally different issues that had arisen within the church. Paul, on the one hand, was arguing against or disputing a doctrine called legalism, right? The belief that we can be saved by what we do by our good works, by circumcision or law-keeping or anything else that we might add to faith. And so that's what Paul is arguing against. On the other hand, James, however, is disputing the doctrine of antinomianism. Now, it's a fancy word. Anti simply means uh, opposed to. And nomianism is a fancy word uh, for, with the Greek root for law, against law. Those who are antinomians believe that now that I have been saved, I don't have to keep God's law. I can live how I want to live. I no longer have to uh, keep the law. Saved by grace, oh blessed condition. I can, I can sin as I please and still have remission. And so Paul is arguing against legalism. James is arguing against antinomianism. So they're coming at the question from two different perspectives. So when Paul says that we're justified by faith alone, he means that the believer adds nothing no works at all to his salvation in order to gain God's favor or to earn his favor. The very moment that a sinner is saved, he is legally declared righteous by God's free grace apart from his works, apart from anything that he could do. That's what Paul is saying. That's, he's arguing against legalism. We're saved by faith and faith alone. Apart from anything that we do, we legally declare righteous once we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what James is saying is that that same faith that Paul is describing, we're saved by faith alone, that same faith, if it's real and if it's genuine, it will certainly be manifested in our lives. It will be demonstrated by what we do, by the way that we live. So you see, James is not contradicting Paul at all. He's saying that that faith, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is not alone. If you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God working in you and through you, the Bible says, to accomplish his good purposes. Just as a healthy fruit tree will necessarily bear good fruit, so a genuine Christian whose, whose nature has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
is a principle of new life within his heart. He will necessarily perform good works, although not perfectly. It's important for me to, to say that because we remember that in the book of John, First uh, John, he says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves as Christians and the truth is not in us. But he also says this, he says, if we confess our sins, he, that is Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from any and all unrighteousness. You see, Christians are not those who say that they have no sin. We're those who confess they sin, who come to the light. But our lives show on a consistent basis what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what James is saying. So in other words, a person who is truly a Christian will for the most part in the way that they live their lives will confirm the very existence and reality of their faith. Even though because we are sinners, it will never happen perfectly in this life. So for Paul, it is faith and faith alone that unites a person to Christ. And for James, that faith that Paul is describing, that faith that unites us to Christ, does not itself remain alone apart from a life of obedience. It will bear some fruit, although not perfectly. And this is the kind of faith in action. This kind of faith in action is exactly what James is referring to in verse 21 when he says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his offering up his son Isaac on the altar, which was very difficult for him to do, proved, justified, vindicated his faith. The faith that he had in God. It showed that he believed what he believed when he offered up his son. You see, James is pointing out how Abraham's faith was active along with his works. And that his faith was then completed or made perfect by what Abraham did, by his actions, by his works. Now, doesn't this make sense? That God would test Abraham's faith. That God would test our faith, right? Your faith, my faith. God doesn't just give us faith without testing it. You see, God is in the business of perfecting the faith of his people, of his saints, of Christians, so that they might bring glory and honor to his name. You see, in Genesis, God tested Abraham by commanding him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And what was God testing? What was he looking for? He was testing Abraham's faith, perfecting it, validating, making it complete. He was looking for the kind of obedience or works that proved to the watching world that Abraham's faith was neither dead nor static, but a faith that was validated and made perfect by what Abraham did. And this was also true for Rahab, a non-Jewish person who had the same faith as Abraham. You see, as the spies entered the land of Canaan, it was faith, Rahab's faith, that caused her to hide the spies in her house and to lie to her very own countrymen, though she most likely knew that would have cost her her life had the spies been discovered in her home. You see, God was testing her faith 
and perfecting it, validating it, and making it complete. So the faith of both Abraham and Rahab glorified God by being obedient, even when it hurt, even when it was difficult, even when it was hard. And we've seen this pattern, right, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old and New Testament. We were studying the book of, uh, of Exodus previously, and we've seen how God tested the faith of the Hebrews after he saved them from the land of Egypt. He tested them through their various trials in the wilderness. We've seen how he tested Job with the various afflictions that he permitted Satan to inflict upon Job. He tested Isaac. He tested Joseph. He tested Moses and so on. And he will test you and he will test me. You see, trials have a way of proving that a person's faith is true or of exposing that a person's faith, his profession, his claim to be a Christian, is false. And this is the message that James would like to convey to his audience, to you and to me as well, to warn us to examine our very own lives and to make sure that we ourselves possess genuine faith, a faith that works, to warn us, both you and me, to live out your faith in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you and through you to accomplish his good purposes. True faith validated. True faith validated. And briefly, let's go to our third and final point, the price of faith illustrated. The price of faith illustrated. You know, the, the price of faith in both the lives of Abraham and the lives of Rahab clearly show us what they themselves were willing to give up. What they were willing to part with in this life if necessary. From their examples, we can learn a very important lesson as Christians today. Through their examples, we learn that although genuine faith, saving faith, the faith that works is a free gift from God, can also be very, very costly. It comes with a price. You see that the faith that was working in both Abraham and in Rahab also made them willing to part with something that they themselves loved. Something that was very near and dear to their hearts. For Abraham, it was the life of his only son whom he loved, his only son Isaac, the person who was to carry on his family name. And for Rahab, it was her very own life that she was willing to give up, and possibly the lives of those who were in her household as well. You see, through their very own life experiences, God was showing both Abraham and Rahab that genuine faith the faith that delivers sinners from sin and judgment was very, very costly indeed. That it came with a price. A cost, though, that only God himself was both willing and able to ultimately pay. You see, both Abraham and Rahab were eventually saved by God himself 
from paying the ultimate price for their faith. Because deliverance came from Abraham, not by the death of his son Isaac, whom he loved, but was provided by God in the form of a ram caught in a thicket. Likewise, deliverance came for Rahab, not by her very own life, the loss of her very own life, nor the death of those who were in her household. But deliverance for Rahab was provided for by God in the form of a scarlet rope that was draped in her window. What do these images symbolize? You see, the ram that was caught in the thicket and the scarlet rope are both symbols of the body and blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was also provided by God as a sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of Rahab, for the sins of Abraham, and for the sins of you, and for the sins of me. You see, Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, and he himself was the only one who could pay the ultimate price for the faith that saves sinners from sin and judgment, God's judgment. Sinners like Abraham and Rahab and you and me. Let us therefore pray and thank God for giving us not only faith itself, but for giving us faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith that truly, truly works. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Christ, Lord, to live and to die for us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us that genuine faith that works. But I pray, Lord, that if there is any today, Lord, who do not have that genuine faith, Lord, whose profession is not consistent with the way that they live, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless that person, Lord, to examine themselves, to see whether they are in the faith. Thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us to bring and bless our lives to bring you glory and to bring you honor throughout the week. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.